Chapter 2, Part 2 of Principles of Geology. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Patrick McAfee, Chicago. Principles of Geology by Charles Lyell. Chapter 2, Part 2 Pythagorean Doctrines. Pythagoras, who resided for more than twenty years in Egypt, and, according to Cicero, had visited the East, and conversed with the Persian philosophers, introduced into his own country, on his return, the doctrine of the gradual deterioration of the human race from an original state of virtue and happiness. But if we are to judge of his theory concerning the destruction and renovation of the earth from the sketch given by Ovid, we must concede it to have been far more philosophical than any known version of the cosmogonies of Oriental or Egyptian sects. Although Pythagoras is introduced by the poet as delivering his doctrine in person, some of the illustrations are derived from natural events which happened after the death of the philosopher. But notwithstanding these anachronisms, we may regard the account as a true picture of the tenets of the Pythagorean school in the Augustan age, and although perhaps partially modified, it must have contained the substance of the original scheme. Thus considered, it is extremely curious and instructive, for we here find a comprehensive summary of almost all the great causes of change now in activity on the globe, and these adduced in confirmation of a principle of a perpetual and gradual revolution inherent in the nature of our terrestrial system. These doctrines, it is true, are not directly applied to the explanation of geological phenomena, or, in other words, no attempt is made to estimate what may have been in past ages, or what may hereafter be, the aggregate amount of change brought about by such never-ending fluctuations. Had this been the case, we might have been called upon to admire so extraordinary an anticipation with no less interest than astronomers, when they endeavored to define by what means the Samian philosopher came to the knowledge of the Copernican system. Let us now examine the celebrated passages to which we have been adverting. Quote, Nothing perishes in this world, but things merely vary and change their form. To be born means simply that a thing begins to be something different from what it was before, and dying is ceasing to be the same thing. Yet, although nothing retains long the same image, the sum of the whole remains constant. These general propositions are then confirmed by a series of examples, all derived from natural appearances except the first, which refers to the golden age giving place to the age of iron. The illustrations are thus consecutively adduced. 1. Solid land has been converted into sea. 2. Sea has been changed into land. Marine shells lie far distant from the deep, and the anchor has been found on the summit of hills. 3. Valleys have been excavated by running water, and floods have washed down hills into the sea. 4. 
Marshes have become dry ground. 5. Dry lands have been changed into stagnant pools. 6. During earthquakes, some springs have been closed up and new ones have broken out. Rivers have deserted their channels and have been reborn elsewhere, as the Aracinus in Greece and Mysus in Asia. 7. The waters of some rivers, formerly sweet, have become bitter, as those of the Anegri in Greece, etc. 8. Islands have become connected with the mainland by the growth of deltas and new deposits, as in the case of Antissa, joined to Lesbos, Pharos to Egypt, etc. 9. Peninsulas have been divided from the mainland and have become islands, as Leucadia, and, according to tradition, Sicily, the sea having carried away the isthmus. 10. Land has been submerged by earthquakes. The Grecian cities of Helis and Buris, for example, are to be seen under the sea, with their walls inclined. 11. Plains have been upheaved into hills by the confined air-seeking vent, as at Trezine in the Peloponnesus. 12. The temperature of some springs varies at different periods. The waters of others are inflammable. 13. There are streams which have a petrifying power and convert the substances which they touch into marble. 14. Extraordinary medicinal and deleterious effects are produced by the water of different lakes and springs. 15. Some rocks and islands, after floating and having been subject to violent movements, have at length become stationary and immovable, as Delos and the Cyanean Isles. 16. Volcanic vents shift their position. There was a time when Etna was not a burning mountain, and the time will come when it will cease to burn. Whether it be that some caverns become closed up by the movements of the earth, and others opened, or whether the fuel is finally exhausted, etc., etc. The various causes of change in the inanimate world having been thus enumerated, the doctrine of equivocal generation is next propounded, as illustrating a corresponding perpetual flux in the animate creation. In the Egyptian and Eastern cosmogonies, and in the Greek version of them, no very definite meaning can, in general, be attached to the term destruction of the world, for sometimes it would seem almost to imply the annihilation of our planetary system, and at others a mere revolution of the surface of the earth. Opinions of Aristotle From the works now extant of Aristotle, and from the system of Pythagoras, as above exposed, we might certainly infer that these philosophers considered the agents of change now operating in nature as capable of bringing about, in the lapse of ages, a complete revolution, and the Stagyrite even considers occasional catastrophes, happening at distant intervals of time, as part of the regular and ordinary course of nature. 
The deluge of Deucalion, he says, affected Greece only, and principally the part called Hellas, and it arose from great inundations of rivers during a rainy winter. But such extraordinary winters, he says, though after a certain period they return, do not always revisit the same places. Sensorinus quotes it as Aristotle's opinion that there were general inundations of the globe, and that they alternated with conflagrations, and that the flood constituted the winter of the great year, or astronomical cycle, while the conflagration, or destruction by fire, is the summer, or period of greatest heat. If this passage, as Lipsius supposes, be an amplification by Sensorinus of what is written in the Meteorics, it is a gross misrepresentation of the doctrine of the Stagyrite, for the general bearing of his reasoning in that treatise tends clearly in an opposite direction. He refers to many examples of changes now constantly going on, and insists emphatically on the great results which they must produce in the lapse of ages. He instances particular cases of lakes that had dried up, and deserts that had at length become watered by rivers and fertilized. He points to the growth of the Nilotic Delta since the time of Homer, to the shallowing of the Palus Metos within sixty years from his own time, and although in the same chapter he says nothing of earthquakes, yet in others of the same treatise he shows himself not unacquainted with their effects. He alludes, for example, to the upheaving of one of the Aeolian islands previous to a volcanic eruption. Quote, the changes of the earth, he says, are so slow in comparison to the duration of our lives that they are overlooked, and the migrations of people after great catastrophes and their removal to other regions cause the event to be forgotten. End quote. When we consider the acquaintance displayed by Aristotle in his various works with the destroying and renovating powers of nature, the introductory and concluding passages of the twelfth chapter of his Meteorics are certainly very remarkable. In the first sentence he says, quote, The distribution of land and sea in particular regions does not endure throughout all time, but it becomes sea in those parts where it was land, and again it becomes land where it was sea. And there is reason for thinking that these changes take place according to a certain system and within a certain period. End quote. The concluding observation is as follows. Quote, as time never fails and the universe is eternal, neither the Tanais nor the Nile can have flowed forever. The places where they rise were once dry, and there is a limit to their operations, but there is none to time. So also of all other rivers, they spring up and they perish, and the sea also continually deserts some lands and invades others. The same tracts, therefore, of the earth are not some always sea and others always continents, but everything changes in the course of time. End quote. It seems, then, 
that the Greeks had not only derived from preceding nations, but had also, in some slight degree, deduced from their own observations the theory of periodical revolutions in the inorganic world. There is, however, no ground for imagining that they contemplated former changes in the races of animals and plants. Even the fact that marine remains were enclosed in solid rocks, although observed by some, and even made the groundwork of geological speculation, never stimulated the industry or guided the inquiries of naturalists. It is not impossible that the theory of equivocal generation might have engendered some indifference on this subject, and that a belief in the spontaneous production of living beings from the earth or corrupt matter might have caused the organic world to appear so unstable and fluctuating that phenomena indicative of former changes would not awaken intense curiosity. The Egyptians, it is true, had taught, and the Stoics had repeated, that the earth had once given birth to some monstrous animals, which existed no longer. But the prevailing opinion seems to have been that after each great catastrophe the same species of animals were created over again. This tenet is implied in a passage of Seneca, where, speaking of a future deluge, he says, Quote, every animal shall be generated anew, and man free from guilt shall be given to the earth. End quote. An old Arabian version of the doctrine of the successive revolutions of the globe, translated by Abraham Echelensis, seems to form a singular exception to the general rule, for here we find the idea of different genera and species having been created. The Gerbanites a sect of astronomers who flourished some centuries before the Christian era, taught as follows, quote, that every period of 36,425 years there were produced a pair of every species of animal, both male and female, from whom animals might be propagated and inhabit this lower world, but when a circulation of the heavenly orbs was completed, which is finished in that space of years, other genera and species of animals are propagated, as also of plants and other things, and the first order is destroyed, and so it goes on forever and ever. End quote. Theory of Strabo as we learn much of the tenets of the Egyptian and Oriental schools in the writings of the Greeks, so many speculations of the early Greek authors are made known to us in the works of the Augustan and later ages. Strabo, in particular, enters largely in the second book of his geography into the opinions of Eratosthenes and other Greeks on one of the most difficult problems in geology, viz., by what causes marine shells came to be plentifully buried in the earth at such great elevations and distances from the sea. He notices, amongst others, the explanation of Xanthus the Lydian, who said that the seas had once been more extensive, and that they had afterwards been partially dried up, as in his own time many lakes, rivers, and wells in Asia had failed during a season of drought. 
Treating this conjecture with merited disregard, Strabo passes on to the hypothesis of Strato, the natural philosopher, who had observed that the quantity of mud brought down by rivers into the Euxine was so great that its bed must be gradually raised while the rivers still continue to pour in an undiminished quantity of water. He therefore conceived that, originally when the Euxine was an inland sea, its level had by this means become so much elevated that it burst its barrier near Byzantium and formed a communication with the Propontis, and this partial drainage, he supposed, had already converted the left side into marshy ground, and thus, at last, the whole would be choked up with soil. So, it was argued, the Mediterranean had once opened a passage for itself by the columns of Hercules into the Atlantic, and perhaps the abundance of seashells in Africa, near the temple of Jupiter Ammon, might also be the deposit of some former inland sea which had at length forced a passage and escaped. But Strabo rejects this theory as insufficient to account for all the phenomena, and he proposes one of his own, the profoundness of which modern geologists are only beginning to appreciate. Quote, it is not, he says, because the lands were covered by seas were originally at different altitudes that the waters have risen or subsided or receded from some parts and inundated others. But the reason is that the same land is sometimes raised up and sometimes depressed, and the sea also is simultaneously raised and depressed, so that it either overflows or returns into its own place again. We must therefore ascribe the cause to the ground, either to that ground which is under the sea, or to that which becomes flooded by it, but rather to that which lies beneath the sea, for this is more movable, and, on account of its humidity, can be altered with great celerity. It is proper, he observes in continuation, to derive our explanations from things which are obvious, and in some measure of daily occurrence, such as deluges, earthquakes, and volcanic eruptions, and sudden swellings of the land beneath the sea. For the last raise up the sea also, and when the same lands subside again, they occasion the sea to be let down. And it is not merely the small, but the large islands also, and not merely the islands, but the continents, which can be lifted up together with the sea, and both large and small tracts may subside, for habitations and cities, like Bure, Bizona, and many others, have been engulfed by earthquakes. End quote. In another place, this learned geographer, in alluding to the tradition that Sicily had been separated by a convulsion from Italy, remarks that at present the land near the sea in those parts was rarely shaken by earthquakes, since there were now open orifices whereby fire and ignited matters and waters escape. But formerly, when the volcanoes of Etna, the Lipari Islands, Ischia, and others were closed up, the imprisoned fire and wind might have produced far more vehement movements. The doctrine, therefore, that volcanoes are safety valves, and that the subterranean convulsions are probably most violent, 
when first the volcanic energy shifts itself to a new quarter is not modern we learn from a passage in strabo that it was a dogma of the gaulish druids that the universe was immortal but destined to survive catastrophes both of fire and water that this doctrine was communicated to them from the east with much of their learning cannot be doubted caesar it will be remembered says that they made use of greek letters in arithmetical computations pliny this philosopher had no theoretical opinions of his own concerning changes of the earth's surface and in this department as in others he restricted himself to the task of a compiler without reasoning on the facts stated by him or attempting to digest them into regular order but his enumeration of the new islands which had been formed in the mediterranean and of other convulsions shows that the ancients had not been inattentive observers of the changes which had taken place within the memory of man such then appears to have been the opinions entertained before the christian era concerning the past revolutions of our globe although no particular investigations had been made for the express purpose of interpreting the monuments of ancient changes they were too obvious to be entirely disregarded and the observation of the present course of nature presented too many proofs of alterations continually in progress on the earth to allow philosophers to believe that nature was in a state of rest or that the surface had remained and would continue to remain unaltered but they had never compared attentively the results of the destroying and reproductive operations of modern times with those of remote eras nor had they ever entertained so much as a conjecture concerning the comparative antiquity of the human race or of living species of animals and plants with those belonging to former conditions of the organic world they had studied the movements and positions of the heavenly bodies with laborious industry and made some progress in investigating the animal vegetable and mineral kingdoms but the ancient history of the globe was to them a sealed book and although written in characters of the most striking and imposing kind they were unconscious even of its existence end of chapter two part two recording by patrick mcafee chicago